and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the morning of Saturday, the 26th of November, 2022 in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom from Seattle, Washington, by Dr. Simone Chon to talk about U.S. policy on Korea, Korean division, peace in Korea, things like that. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. On Spotify, you can uh, leave a rating, but not a review, but please do that anyway. Apple Podcast allows both. And on YouTube, you can like and subscribe. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Third, follow me on Twitter at JackoZ and nknews at nknews.org. For podcast questions and suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or you can email us at podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guest today, Dr. Simone Chon, is a teacher and researcher on U.S. foreign policy on Korea. She's an active member of the Korea Peace Network and a member of the Alliance of Scholars Concerned About Korea's Steering Committee. She has a Ph.D. from the University of California at Santa Barbara and contributes regularly to Truthout, Counterpunch, Hangyore, and other progressive media outlets. And you can find her on Twitter at Simone Chon, and we'll put that uh, link in the show notes. Hello, Simone, and welcome on the NK News podcast. Thanks for having me. Could you start by telling us about the Korea Peace Network? What is it and what does it do and who's in it? So Korea Peace Network is non-governmental uh, NGOs and a grassroots organization based in, uh, United, um, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is uh, umbrella and broader um, alliance that includes Korean Americans and also American peace activists and uh, scholars and also those who work specifically also for lobbying U.S. Congress, and, and also umbrella of uh, American peace organizations. And it was formed, it is not really formally, um, I guess, established, but mm -hmm. it has been organized and active since 20, 2018 and 20, uh, 2019 and 2021. And, mm. uh, uh, Korea Peace Network has been specifically um, focused, has been very active in the advocacy and especially loving Congress for uh, peace agreement in the Korean Peninsula. And how do you feel that's going at the moment? Um, I think that the best, uh, I guess it was the most active time was during, you know, actually the Trump administration. So when mm. they're doing the, you know, three summits. And it has been since that it has had the more has greater difficulties because of, as you can see, the continuing obstacles and the um, and also uh, going returning to more um, hardline policies um, towards North Korea. And there has been some obviously major challenges. But I think that on the other hand, the good news is that uh, the grassroots organization has grown, has been growing, and especially on the front of Korean Americans. Mm -hmm. um, Probably, I think this is in my memory. This is probably the first time when Korean Americans, the critical mass of Korean Americans, are uh, directly involved mm. in the Korea peace movement. So I think, in that sense, this is truly historic um, moment. On despite the fact that a lot of challenges. Would you say it's largely a Korean-American driven organization? 
or network? It is, yeah, it is Korean American driven organization. And I think the uh, those who have the most con have contributed are the one, in fact, actually second generation of a Korean Americans. Mm -hmm. I think that you have interviewed Christian An, for instance, previously. Yeah. And also the Koreans, like myself, I'm actually, I was born and obviously I was raised and I got most of my education in Korea until I came to the United States for my uh, graduate program, graduate study. And also there are a lot of um, Koreans uh, who live in the United States, who and Koreans who have a lot of connections with the, all the, you know, what's happening in Korea and the politics and the foreign affairs. And they're also uh, have greater um, influence and contribution. So to answer your question, yes, it is primarily, you know, led um, by the Koreans and living in the United States, not as Korean Americans. Yeah. And, in, you know, with, with a solid, great solidarity with the uh, amazing American peace activists who have obviously have a far longer history of uh, a grassroots peace movement. Mm. Now, you're also, as I said in the introduction, a member of the steering committee of the Alliance of Scholars Concerned About Korea. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The Alliance of Scholars, that is mostly scholars, uh, scholars and, uh, you know, focusing on the Korea. And mm -hmm. it is which, which fields of scholarship are they from? Scholarship, it's, it's multidisciplinary. Uh, yeah political science, mm -hmm. uh, anthropology, history. So it is interdisciplinary um, research and scholars. Yeah. Uh, it is, as I said, it's a pro mostly, most, you know, more progressive scholars who, who wanted to contest the more uh, established or discourse on, the, especially, you know, inter-Korean and also uh, US-North Korean relations. Mm -hmm. So that is, uh, you know, it was formed especially when, in response to the uh, US, you know, the continuing sort of a, somewhat uh, to provide a critical analysis on the Korean War, especially the the role of the United States has played. Mm -hmm. And that is, yeah, and that is, and also uh, these days we have more also trying to cr create more, you know, critical academics, let's say, um, analysis and also research and also uh, educational tools for to inform, especially, you know, uh, Americans uh, who may not be well informed about the Korean history mm. of the Korean War. Now, you've lived in the United States for many years. How do you understand U.S. policy towards North Korea? I think U.S. policy towards North Korea, it has a pretty uh, sort of bipartisan, you know, consensus, which is looking at North Korea as uh, the enemy instead of, uh, instead of a country where the United States can, you know, coexist, United States can uh, diplomatically acknowledge and which also obviously starting from the you know Korean War you know those who uh, somewhat have a different opinion about the Korean War but you know the Korean War where United States committed what is almost amount to genocide which is meaning that you know almost 20 to 30 percent of Koreans were basically injured or who were killed and the majority of those um, the violence were, you know, committed by American uh, soldiers. But in spite of the role the U.S. played in that Korean War, um, United States has, um, for the last, in my view, for the now it's entering to almost ninth decade, refused to uh, sign a treaty uh, agreement that can end the Korean War. And overall, I think the bottom line is continuing hostile policy towards. The north and uh, and also therefore perpetuating 
really um, a tragedy. And as you know, Korea has been one nation and, you know, for uh, for centuries and uh, now, you know, has been remaining divided and also most, most likely unless U.S. changes policy towards hostile policy towards North Korea, it will probably uh, continue. Uh, South Korea will be continue to remain divided. So in a nutshell, I think the U.S. hostile policy toward North Korea has been um, you know, it defines, and uh, as I as I see in the United States, it's not just the the on the analysis size. And uh, when I had a chance to meet with some of those members of Congress and uh, policy analysts, and uh, they're they're you know, it, it's very startling to see how number one how little they are in know about the Korea, history of Korea, or for that matter, North Korea, and also how they're um so has almost bipartisan um, consensus on the um, on, on maintaining that um, hostile policy towards North. And how do you contrast that with the North Korean policy towards the US? I think North Korean policy towards the United States is, you know, on the, if you look at the media, well, especially in, in the United States, almost all, most of the media coverage is, is so negative and also ignorant of North Korea, it's hard to, uh, you know, see any other alternative news. So um, in that sense, North Korea is, is, a, uh, is a threat to United States, although North Korea that has only, what, between 30 to, let's say, 60, 80 nuclear weapons, as opposed to United States that has more, you know, uh, 5,000 nuclear weapons. Um, so the idea that, you know, that, that uh, North Korea can be a threat to United States for some, it could be pretty, um, it's not the sensible um, interpretation, but North Korea and also North Korea, you know, as far as people in the United States and especially policymaker concerned, it's uh, possession of nuclear weapons um, is also great a threat, not only to United States and also to the entire world. So that is the way North Korea is defined. So it is, it is pretty difficult to contest that. Um, nevertheless, if you look at from North Korean point of view, as a country that has always almost, you know, experienced through such a terrible war and uh, pretty much uh, during Korean War, you know, the complete experience, complete decimation or genocidal level, I think it, it is somewhat, it's understandable why North Korea want to develop its deterrence capability. And in that sense, I guess, uh, uh, you know, it's just complete from the historical um, uh, perspective and background. It is, I think there is an argument that can be made that North Korea's position, that is, again, I said to its need to de develop its defense and also continue to uh, consistently demand diplomatic uh, engagement and also, um, normalization with the United States, it, it is sensible uh, policy, which United States, I guess, even, you know, these days, uh, refuse to give to North Korea. You've brought in the, uh, the Korean War a couple of times. How do you see the beginning of the Korean War? And is it important to understand correctly how the war began? The war began, the war did not begin in 1950, uh, as, as we understand our textbook says us. It was actually, as you know, Korea was colonized 
by the Japanese for 35 years, that's brutal colonization, and then um, Korean War and kind of halted. The, the, the Japanese colonization halted in 19, ended in 1945. And immediately uh, after the uh, Japanese colonization, liberation, South Korea was under three years of U.S. military government. And during that time, and South Korea had a right-wing uh, pro-U.S. Uh, president uh, recent month. And during that time, there has uh, almost a massive, massive, before even the Korean War started, there was a massive repression and a war against anybody who were um, supporting unified Korea, who opposed a, a divided Korea, who sought independence, who movement. And those are all, I guess, categorized as a communist, communist sympathizers, leftists. And there was thousands of thousands of Koreans were basically um, repressed and murdered and um, eliminated. Now, so in this sense, what I'm saying is the Korean War uh, did not start uh, 1950. And, uh, and in a way, the U.S.-led and South Korean right-wing government supported massive repression against the Korean progressive, Korean leftists, were also, um, uh, was also the prelude to the Korean War. Now, about the Korean War, it was, some argue that it was a civil war, if you like people like Bruce Cummings, it was a civil war where United States intervened, and others, those the other side, uh, arguing will be North Korea invaded uh, South Korea. And whatever view you have, the fact of matter is that it is the, the unprecedented level of uh, U.S. involvement, U.S. Um, part the part the U.S. played in the uh, almost you know it's, it's a brutal uh, campaign. And as you know, you know more bombs were dropped on the Korean soil than the entire uh, Pacific uh, campaign against Japanese during World War II. And, uh, um, and, and so much so that uh, I think the best, one of the best statements about the Korean War was uh, no other than General uh, Douglas MacArthur, who says in his congressional testimony, he said, uh, something like uh, he has never seen uh, such level of devastation, and I said if you're continuing, if, you know, I, I assume we United States, if you're continuing this war, it's it's a basically it's amount to um, the slaughter, the kind of slaughter that he has never you know heard in history of mankind. I think that's pretty much the accurate um, kind of assessment. Uh, uh, the Korean War. Do you see the Soviet and Chinese interventions as being important in this history? Soviet and Chinese intervention was important and to the extent that there was also, I don't know, it was the, uh, already the, even during, at the end of World War II, it was now the, we already, the Cold War started and the Soviet and China are certainly did play a role and even if you look at uh, those scholars who look at the, you know, their greater role in uh, influencing, affecting North Korea. Uh, that being said, though, I think if you look at it, the level of destruction, especially what happened after the Korean War. So, for instance, as you recall, the armistice was signed in 1953. Now, according to the armistice, that's you know signed by, uh, including the United States. 
the uh, United there's all foreign troops should be withdrawn, and you cannot introduce any new weapons and etc. And also, the armistice agreement also uh, dictate stipulate that within ninety days of the uh, signing the agreement, you you know they're supposed to have a peace agreement. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason why I'm saying this is because of the Again, the yes, United States was involved in all superpowers were involved, but what what they did after the the signing of the armistice is is, is a, to some extent more important than even the war itself. And United States, in my view, violated almost all those um, the armistice agreement and introducing already nuclear weapons, which they kept until 1991. And pretty much perpetuating this, the division and the Korean War, and also hostile policy against the North Korea as a sort of cover for its uh, Cold War against, obviously, Soviet Union. And now it's now we are, looks like it's launching another new Cold War against uh, China, and and so as far as you know, that's why, I mean. As I mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot of uh, great peace movements and not only Korean Americans and American peace activists and even including the Moon Jae-in administration, previous administration have tried to um, make some progress. And uh, I think there are a lot of people who are pretty um, uh, pessimistic and skeptical about any prospect of peace or settlement in Korea, as long as the United States um, maintain its policy of, you know, that's containment. I mean, it's a containment policy. So well, let's talk about that time when Moon Jae-in was president of South uh -huh. Korea and Donald Trump was president of uh, of the United States. Uh, it seems to to me that there was a lot of a uh, lot of talks. There were a lot of summits. Uh, what were, in your views, the obstacles that blocked inter-Korean reconciliation or constructive diplomacy at that time? Yes, that's when actually I, you know, I have I was very active with the uh, peace organizations. I also was in Seoul right before the first summit, and Trump, despite of all that effort, uh, including I mean President Moon Jae-in and also uh, Trump. Actually, if you look at the record, there is more the um, Americans' hardline policy, maximum pressure policies did not change. And there is more uh, sanctions, new sanctions against North Korea. And every time when, and also all those inter-Korean agreements were pretty much obstructed by the Trump administration. And those of you who were um, in, in the United States at the time, you know, I have a so vivid memory, for instance, during the American media that, you know, covers that summit. It's, a, it was pretty, um, it was, you know, shocking how literally a lot of those, you know, the, what I call hardliners, hawkish, people like John Bolton, in their view, their view were pretty much the, I would, in my view, was more mainstream view of Americans. And it was almost a fear that, you know, about any you know, peace breaking out on the Korean Peninsula. And so I think to answer, a short answer to your question is that uh, uh, Moon Jae-in, President Moon Jae-in, I think he did, uh, he had the genuine um, interest and also he did uh, very, you know, vig vigorously pursue the, um, for peace, but I don't think he was a realistic 
to some extent, and 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 he's subordinated too much to Trump's pressure. And well, you you mentioned John Bolton. You haven't mentioned Steve Beacon, who was very active at that Beacon, time. What yeah. do you see as his role in that uh, in that period? Steve Beacon, I think that we were a lot of us were actually quite enthusiastic to some extent with Steve Beacon, but it looks like he also uh, his role was somewhat limited in at the end of the Trump administrations. And uh, I think that he pretty much, uh, the Trump administration, the hardliners uh, took over. And and I think that was uh, our impression. Now, I, I don't want to put words in Steve Began's mouth because he's not here to join us today, but I have actually spoken to him on the podcast. I'm not sure if you've heard that episode uh, or not. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but Mr. Began said that towards the end of his time, it wasn't so much the hardline American policy is the fact that the North Koreans were not interested in talking. And the North Koreans were not interested in talking also because uh, it's Americans, you know, Americans refused to, um, a Trump administration refused to really give any concrete things such as reducing or um, ending U.S.-South Korea joint military exercises and also ending uh, hostile policy towards uh, North Korea and also obviously um, they're lifting those sanctions. But those um, exercises had stopped since the Singapore summit, as I recall. Yeah, those that stopped. But I think that the North Korea actually there was a stopped, but it was not um, North Korea wanted to something more. That is more towards you know the ending the U.S. Uh, hostile policy. And I think the Trump administration was never interested in giving those things that North Korea thought very you know, critical and is vital. And at the end, I think in North Korea, I mean, I cannot really probably, you know, uh, there are others who can, who have more information about North Korea's position at the time. But uh, at the end of the round of talk, North Korea, I think, came down with the conclusion that uh, Trump administration was not really serious about you know the permanent peace and also normalizing with the uh, North Korea I think that what that is my um in, impression so what's your vision of uh peace building on the Korean Peninsula how should that proceed one I must say that unless we have accurate analysis or understanding of U.S. foreign policy I don't think uh, peace is going to be possible in the Korean Peninsula in the short, either short run or long run. Um, in the short run, I do not see any, you know, progress under Biden and new administration. In the long run, also, Americans, you know, is to me is significant, an important component of U.S. foreign policy is is imperialism. And it is central. Can you define that? What do you mean by imperialism exactly? Imperialism to mean that you know it's it has a powerful country have a greater control over uh, weaker states with regard to its territory, its a uh, its a security force, national defense, and and also uh, other economic resources. For instance, as you know, South Korea does not have operational control of its national uh, military force and uh, called Afcon. Um, we have control. to be we have to clarify for our listeners that that is a uh, a complicated uh, I mean we, yeah. we don't want to oversimplify it you said that South Korea does not have operational does control. Not have but... Afcon. So operational control means that having the um, the control of its defense force 
now because it, was it, it does uh, during peacetime uh, and during wartime they have something called a combined forces command so it's not as if the u.s military simply tells the south korean military every day what to do you're aware that there's a difference between opcon and peacetime and opcon and wartime and you're aware you're familiar with the combined forces command aren't you exactly so but still the fact of matter is that it was developed during korean war and uh, um and it continued and dictates pretty much south korea uh, military operate but independently only but it, it's also that. true that during the korean war the uh the soldiers of all other nations so from australia to belgium to uh to colombia south africa turkey all of these forces were under the united States united states command and i don't know if we could say that that's an example of u.s imperialism there's a, a the fact of the matter is that it's continued south korea is probably you know this is a more uh, in the, even from independent international uh research institute like institute for security and development policy and it, it's quite a unique case where uh foreign troops have command over on the uh on other countries which is in the case of south korea in any modern time there's only country like before it was afghanistan or even right now iraq have that kind of uh, foreign troops have that kind of control. so in that sense i i mean imperialism and also and also south korea the role of a uh, military industrial complex in the united states i i think all of us aware of how important role that they play and you know they're informing does the kind of complements they're informing and driving u.s foreign policy and not only that in the united states also imperialistic in this opportunity extent that as you know as uh, i think it was a trump who says that basically south korea you know cannot do anything without uh, approval united states approval so i think it i think it is south korea does not have enjoy implement practice it's full sovereignty, especially when you're, you know, and you also host 28,000 U.S. troops uh, stationed all over the United, all over the, uh, all over South Korean soil. Um, and I think this, this is, so it is to me, if it's not an imperialistic policy, I'm not sure what other term would you use. Well, um, I, I think that that I'm I'm very hesitant to use the word imperialism here. When I think of imperialism, I think of what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now as an example of actual imperialism. In, in South Korea, which is a sovereign nation, the South the Repu the government of the Republic of Korea has, uh, of its own accord, signed an alliance with the United States. So those twenty eight thousand troops that you refer to, they're here because the South Korean mm -hmm. government wants them here. If the South Korean government tomorrow said we're done with the alliance, we don't need the troops anymore, they'd have to go home, wouldn't they? Um, in principle, they can, but uh, in actually, uh, they they you know South Koreans do not have that kind of authority. They and, do not. Uh, How do we know that? That kind of however and uh, and also another will be there are considerable obviously a uh, number of uh, population percentage population especially the uh, conservative who wants the continuing support continuing u.s um, presence military presence within south in part because they looked at um uh without north korean threat without american force in South Korea, their conservative position will, you know, they will lose their um, uh, reason to exist uh, to extent that. So there's a lot of even uh, opposition for any 
of ending any U.S. Um, I would say what I consider as U.S. occupation of South Korea. Hmm. Do you see any sign that progressive presidents of South Korea, such as Moon Jae-in, uh, Noh Moo-hyun, Kim Dae-jung, that they tried to get the U.S. forces to leave? They are politicians. I don't. I don't think that they ever expl explicitly uh, uh, advocated that. And uh, but is it politics or is it occupation? I mean, they're very different words, aren't they? No, what I'm saying is that if because of their because of their because they're politicians, they yes. I don't think they explicitly would advocate the um, you know the demanding American troops, you know, drawing of American troops or leaving you know American troops leaving American troops uh, South Korea. Mm. I don't think they have done it, but I there are there how however so politicians, political leaders, whether it's a, a progressive or left progressive or conservative. Uh, no president have advocated. However, within South Korea, there's progressive forces who look at the, basically look at American troops as uh, occupying forces. And as long as you have Americans who occupy South Korea, there are you going to have a continue this policy of containment policy, which again, you know, it's uh, con containing China and restraining South Korea to serve as U.S. interest as a South Korea as a sort of frontline uh, post to uh, to promote interest that's not going to change. So I think it you know to answer your question, no South Korean none of the existing uh, or previous uh, uh, Korean president ever uh, supported the uh, um, they were demanding the U.S. you know the withdrawing of U.S occupying forces in South Korea. Do you think there's a lot of public support in South Korea for the removal of, uh, of US forces? Opinion poll says no. And uh, in fact, depending on, you know, opinion poll, it's now it's more, more American, no more Koreans support the American uh, forces stationed in South Korea. Do you think um, they would agree with your use of the word occupation? I mean, that's an emotional word, isn't it? It's a laden term, occupation, imperialism. I don't think they are why would they be emotional and emotional term i think this you are you you let's say 28000 american forces uh -huh. um stationed in south korea so I'll tell you why it's an emotional term because the term occupation and imperialism very clearly uh, reject the agency of the nation that is being that these words are being imposed upon uh, I've, I've I've phrased that badly. I should say that in another way. That uh, the by using the terms imperialism and occupation, it seems to reduce South Korean agency to zero, to reduce South Korea uh, to a a passive object, which is having the will of America forced upon it. I think that uh, it is could look at that way. Um, however, it is also I think the reality that South Korea. Uh, I would say, you know, the South Korea sovereignty is greatly uh, limited. If it's not, I mean, we can talk about varying degree of imperialism and occupation, I suppose. But I don't think it's necessarily so emotional or negative to that extent. Mm. It is just, to me, it's just accurate. And uh, if you look at, you know, almost all the decisions that South Korea make, makes, with regard, especially with its uh, foreign policy towards uh, related to uh, North Korea and also especially in United U.S. South Korean uh, relations, 
um, I don't think South Korea is an equal partner. I don't think South Korea exerts its full sovereignty, sovereign power. And uh, you mm-hmm. know, they call US-South Korea alliance as ironclad alliance. Yes. Uh, definitely, it is not an you know, uh, alliance between two equal uh, powers. And so if, it's, if, if, so if it's not, what is it? So, when you say it's not an alliance in, of two equal powers, do you mean in terms of strength or, or in terms all, of what? Yeah, in terms of all aspects. It's all aspects. Again, going back to the Americans having its uh, uh, control over South Korean military. Um, and also, um, especially right now, we have in the, in the new sort of a Cold War with the China. Now, Americans... Uh, dictating more uh, sort of uh, pressure on you know South Korea to join this the new Cold War against China um, and and if so if you look at all these areas where America has greater control and at the, at the same time um, refusing to or blocking any inter-Korean rapprochement reconciliation despite the rhetoric um, I think it's a pretty. I think it's pretty accurate to say that United South Korea, despite of its its now tenth largest economy, and it's South Korea, despite its, you know, if you look at the military, um, sixth sixth largest um, most powerful military force, mm-hmm. um, having six hundred thousand active men on duty. Uh, it's still it's 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 not able to uh, make you know exercise its sovereignty and especially especially under right wing presidents like Yoon Sung Yeol and before that it was um, uh, for instance you know it's a predecessor Kim Young Bak and Park Geun so I think and so what you have is that it's it's a form of a, I was I will still consider it United States occupying force is implementing its uh, imperialistic policy mm-hmm. with considerable support uh, within South Korea, those right-wing political groups or politicians who benefit from perpetual division. And and also continuing this the Korean War, you know, we all know that. Uh, when Korean you say continuing the Korean War, um, what Korean- actually do you mean? Because my understanding is that uh, it's the role of the the armistice forces to make sure that there's no fighting. So when you say continuing the Korean War, do you actually mean continuing fighting that the, UN, the United States wants to keep fighting North Korea uh, and until uh, unification is achieved through defeating North Korea? Is that what you mean? I think continuing war it means that the Korean War has not uh, obviously ended. It's still technically, you know, Korea is in a war. Right, but there's no fighting. There's what we call an armistice. The armistice um, is held for the last seventy years. So what? What do you mean? How do you so I, define that as the continuing the war? So what I'm saying is that the maintaining the tension with uh, North Korea. So um, that means that uh, continue in a way the that continuing uh, tension with the North Korea will give justify U.S. presence in the Korean Peninsula. Suppose uh, tomorrow Biden administration decided that you know, something that can actually United States can you know, do easily if it has a will, um, normalize with the North Korea, decide to coexist with North Korea. 
and um, as many Korean American peace activists and also many peace activists have are working on uh, peace agreement, peace treaty. If do that, there's uh, no uh, tension, uh, at, at least reducing the tension in the Korean. And if that happened, uh, it's not good news for a lot of American established, uh, let's say, military industrial complex and others because American troops, there's no reason for American troops to be stationed in, in the Korean Peninsula. In the last month, we've seen a greater number of missiles fired by North Korea than ever before, as well as 150 or 180 yeah. sorties of North Korean Air Force planes very close to the demilitarized zone. Mm -hmm. Now, I've read some of your op-ed pieces, and often when you write about North Korean aggression or North Korean threats, you place the word aggression or threats in scare quotes as if to suggest they're not actually aggression or threats. So in your view, does North Korea ever carry out real aggression or threats or or have a hostile policy? Hostile policy to whom? Against whom? Yes, I, I, I was uh, going to let you answer that. I said hostile policy against uh, uh, which party? Well, uh, to, okay, then let me forget hostile policy for a moment. When North Korea fires missiles and flies airplanes near the demilitarized zone, is that aggression or threats? Or, or do you see that as, uh, I mean, what, what actually is that? Uh, let's suppose, uh, so you recall that uh, how many uh, joint military uh, war games between United States and South Korea have um, conducted even, you know, let's say even this year alone, right? And we have from even, you know, from March through all the way to um, mm -hmm. August, you had a series of, uh, it was almost hyper-military um, joint exercises with the United States. And I guess the assumption, you know, that one, the, what you're, as far as North Korea concerns, I'm, I, they also have to respond to that. So but it's what, not what does North Korea see of those, you're talking about the joint exercises, how does North Korea know about joint exercises? What does North Korea see or experience of these joint drills and exercises? I think those are the North Korea look at, you know, those exercises are not just exercises. Those are, you know, some we call it a war games. And right, they but they're not are... visible. What I mean is you can't see them with a pair of binoculars if you're standing at the demilitarized zone. So how does North Korea experience these exercises? They, 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 they find it as this is a threat, threat to um, to North Korea, and also. But how do know, they know they're happening? How do you know they're happening? Yes. How, do, how can they not know it's happening? They are they also happening all of the news. They also they can also see there from their intelligence source and North Korea and also those are uh, annual war games are scheduled and uh, and also. So they know that they're happening from the media. They also have, they will also, have, North Korea will also have to, um, they all to mobilize their uh, defense forces to uh, to uh, uh, confront that to, you know, in, in an emergency case. Now, uh, the main, the point is that you talked about how, not, what, why, you know, what is not, why do North Korea conduct all this missile level? Are they, you know, are they, are they any hostile? Well, yeah, because you, you use the words aggression and threats in scare quotes, and I think mm -hmm. that's a, a deliberate choice, and I wonder why you do that. Are they not aggression or threats? I, I, I'm using the quote because also, because um, also when I quote other scholars, other analysts, 
and also because North Korea, a lot of North Korea missile uh, tests and uh, those um, exercises they are doing is all specifically in response to continuing U.S. and South Korea um, exercises. And also, on the other hand, the other side, North Korea is, we already know, is uh, um, they have nuclear uh, weapons. And also, without any uh, permanent uh, peace settlement and peace treaty, um, North Korea have its right to defend themselves. That's why they do need to um, uh, develop. But defend themselves against what exactly? What are they defending themselves and against? This is, uh, you, if you look at it specifically, North Korea, I think they're the pro they're enemies they still consider the United States as being the biggest um, enemy of the North Korea's um, uh, sovereignty. And South Korea being uh, presumably secondary, South Korea, not South Korean people, but South Koreans, um, those uh, forces that supports US uh, aggressive posture toward North Korea. So in that sense, I guess the, the South North Korea's policy has, North Korea's position is pretty consistent. And uh, there, uh, there is, it is, a, it is a demanding again in whether using, you know, nuclear weapons, uh, developing nuclear weapons or testing those missiles. It is still continue, continue to demand normalization and coexistence with the United States, uh, United States and demand the US and its um, hostile policy toward North. Um, and I think that is pretty much the um, North Korea's policy and it has been, and I think it's, it, it will, will be unless North uh, United States, uh, I mean, again, the United States decide to you know, coexist and normalize relations with North Korea. Does North Korea have a hostile policy towards South Korea? North and South Korea, as you know, we, it is a one, one nation. And I think during the Moon Jae-in administration, during that, the work towards uh, peace, and uh, we had this expression that country, we were one nation, we only separated from, you know, just last um, 80 years or so. Now, North Korea has hostile policy towards South Korea if South Korea is, South Korea opposes into Korean uh, rapprochement if South Korea, instead of thinking about it to shared history, shared um, national, na one nation, it, it, South Korea, you know, more supports US imperialistic policy. Yes, if that is, if that happened, um, I think North Korea would look at South Korea as, uh, as an enemy. During the last years of President Moon Jae-in's time in the Blue House in South Korea, mm -hmm. the North Koreans, I, I don't know if you're looking at North Korean state media, but they were saying some horrible things about uh, President Moon Jae-in, whom you just described earlier as clearly being very interested in inter-Korean reconciliation and rapprochement, but they called him all sorts of names. They blew up the inter-Korean uh, liaison building in Kaesong. Uh, are these these are clearly hostile acts. Uh, why was North Korea so hostile, even when the South Korean government was the closest that you could imagine to uh, uh, to achieving what North Korea actually wanted? Well, South Korea did not uh, fully implement the inter-Korean agreement and, uh, and summit agreement. And South Korea, at the end, even despite the President Moon Jae-in's effort, uh, it 
it could not really resist uh, those forces from the United States that tried to uh, sabotage the inter-Korean agreement. And, uh, and, and so that's where I think North Korea was more, they got more, uh, they were somewhat disappointed. And as, it, well, as disappointment it, is one thing, but this was hostile. Blowing up a building for which was the inter-Korean liaison office was a was that a a disappoint an act of disappointment or an act of hostility in your well, view? I I think that, that that was also specifically in response to in in response to the um, Trump administration's um, sabotaging inter-Korean agreement. It was it was that uh, um, you know there was a great expectation about uh, not only between U.S. and DPRK but also uh, to Koreas. And uh, every single step of the way, uh, United States blocked those inter-Korean reconciliation. Uh, and so I think in that sense, that North Korea, it was, uh, um, it was uh, this protest. Obviously, I, you know, personally, I wish it didn't happen, but that was uh, the way North Korea wanted to deal with it. And another thing about uh, you talk about, though, these are all the things you're coming from Pyongyang. I think some of them are rhetorics. And just the way that Americans, uh, you know, the American rhetoric, media, and also the policymaker rhetoric towards North Korea, you know, basically they say they obliterate North Korea. And uh, um, so I think in that level, rhetorics on both sides. But on the other hand, if you look at those during the summit uh, under President Moon Jae-in, under President Moon Jae-in, I mean, those of who know Korean, if you follow those summit, it was to me, it was to me, it was I was I was blown away. I'm listening to following in Korean all the things, the way they communicate in Korean. And what, what uh, do you mean? Why were you blown away? I'm blown away because um, first of all, it was you know we still think that although I'm Korean, I still think North Korea it's because it's one nation. But we, because we haven't separated for so long, we now we, I think in both Koreas, we tend to think a little bit differently. And, but when I saw the two leaders, even Kim Jong-un expressing, you know, some of those things that you will normally, you know, hear from uh, my fellow South Koreans, uh, you know, the kind of words that he, they use, the greetings and even humor and, and uh, uh, a little discourse, uh, the Korean language, the common language that we have. And when I saw that, um, I to me there was some there, that's something that you don't something that you don't see in the rhetoric. Let's say what is hostile rhetoric that North Korea, you know, coming out from Pyongyang, Pyongyang. And uh, so, um, so I think that uh, what I, my point is that sometimes you kind of have to kind of look at beyond that rhetoric. And beyond the surface and look underneath that mm. there is that a nation that have still great commonalities and the yeah. history and um i think people kind of you know um forget that and i i and i think earlier i mentioned and before we start recording um i remember you know meeting this north korean scholar in um, in hong kong and uh, for two days we were speaking the whole time we we're speaking in english and then at the end, uh, for a couple of hours, we were both looking at each other and I said, oh my God, you know, we can communicate in Korean. So we start talking in Korean. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it, you know, it was, it was quite an experience. And what I found was, you know, earlier I said, I'm kind of, I'm kind of pretty pessimistic about peace breaking out in Korea in mm -hmm. any near future. That's one thing actually that I do remember. There is something that probably the only hope that, like Koreans 
but the only hope in the Korea is not even maybe even Washington even in a policy level that uh, uh, there's something that two Korea still have that is still the language that the, the tradition the culture and history uh, which you know which the uh, the our private sort of uh, uh, memories a private history can kind of uh, uh, carry and and the bonds that still the two Koreas have I think that's like that's where lies uh, biggest hope well looking beyond the, the rhetoric for a moment there what what do you actually believe is North Korea's ultimate goal or objective what does the government of Pyongyang what does Kim Jong-un want at the end of the day you know, it's hard to answer the question. I, I honestly have to say I don't know mm -hmm. because I, I don't want it to claim that what's going on inside of Kim Jong-un's head. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do, you know, I do based on the those the what he said or what also the uh, the North Korean um I guess the representative stated, I think there's still uh, there is a in the deep down there is a sense that um, they would like to have a country that is um, that does not have to uh, have this under the constant sort of threat of war from the United States or for them at any country. I think they do want to have um, a country where they can peacefully coexist with the South Korea. Um, in, in the long term, or is this like a short term intermediate step to to something else? I think there will be, you know, to long term, it will be, it will be long term, uh, um, long term goal. Mm -hmm. But to get to to have that, to have that long term goal, North Korea especially has the, the confront the biggest obstacle. That is again, I'm going back to United States, and you cannot have uh, any, uh, you cannot implement any national economic. Uh, or develop or any normal uh, kind of national development when you are constantly under the threat of uh, really nuclear war even from the United States and uh, but that is why they are I mean I'm not trying to defend North Korea but I mean it's, it seems to be sensible for them to uh, at least take care I mean take that take care of that they you know defend being able to defend themselves and then go on to you know, moving on to net economic development. So in fact, I remember when I was talking to the North Korean scholar in the, more than 10 years ago, and that's what they said, you know, because I was asking the same question that you're asking right now. So I was asking, you know, why don't you guys just focus on, I would say, economic development instead of spending, you know, such enormous resource on, on you know, at the, at the military. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, his, I'm sure you have heard, you know, too, his portion was, you know, first we have to take care of the national, you know, just we have to be able to protect ourselves because we're under threat of the United States. And and then I, I have trouble understanding that it, it's very difficult to the way that you put it here, it sounds as if if North Korea didn't have uh, nuclear weapons, the United States would invade North Korea tomorrow. Is that kind well, of how you look at it? I think it is, it is not, I get not so much how I look at it. I think it's the, what yeah. the, the way the North Koreans, uh, I think probably they were thinking. But that can't be right because North Korea didn't yeah. have nuclear weapons during the 1950s and the United States didn't invade after the Korean War. Then North Korea did not have nuclear weapons in the 1960s and the United States did not invade. North Korea did not have nuclear weapons in the 1970s. I could repeat myself for the 1980s and the yeah. 1990s. So in all of these decades, the United States didn't, defend or take one inch of North Korean territory 
And now we're supposed to believe that North Korea feels that it, only with nuclear weapons can it defend itself from the United States. What What is the exact threat that's going on here? What's the threat? I think the exact threat is precisely that the United States refused to end the war. It, the exact threat, whether it's a nuclear or a conventional weapons, United States is the only country. In fact, actually, if you look at the, all the world history, I and mean, every war has a beginning and an end. Even you know, the Homer in ancient time wrote a big you know Iliad and Odyssey. Over ten years, war was long, but he's wrote you know they can produce the classic work. A uh, hundred years of war between France and England ended. So every war has beginning, but the, the only war that has not really, it's halted, it's not ended the Korean War. That means that North Korea, regardless whether it's a nuclear weapons, regardless whether it's a, a conventional weapons, North Korea is under the threat uh, by the United States. What precisely is the threat posed by an armistice? An armistice means ceasefire, stop shooting, stop firing. What is the, the threat that is posed by a ceasefire exactly? I don't understand that. So to, to, to ceasefire is simply, it, it's halting the war. So halting the fighting. Right, but what is the threat of the halt of a war? How, do, how is that a threat? Halting the war, but you can, anytime you can, anytime you can, uh, you can, uh, um, you can end, you can start the war. That's the, that's the, state of the Korean uh, peninsula. It's not, that's what that's not with precisely, there's no peace treaty, right, ending the war. So that's the difference between Korean war that is in the uh, armistice and the Korean and, and the other, uh, the other state that North Korea and also a lot of Koreans and also uh, uh, a lot of Americans also in the United States and the peace activists, the one is declaring and signing a peace a treaty that says Korean War has ended, and uh, the United States uh, uh, can coexist with North Korea and normalize with North Korea, but that is not um, that's not happening, and in my view, is not going to happen anytime soon. Thus, North is you know North Korea, United States uh, poses a threat to North Korea. You're very critical of the United States and South Korea as political leadership, especially uh, presidents to the right of center, such as the current President Yoon. Do you ever criticize North Korea? You know what? I criticize North Korea to the extent that um, North Korea, um, yes, I I do. I'm aware of those scholars who, let's say, criticize North Korea's uh, human rights violations, North Korea's North Korea is a causing threat to not only the United States and mm. the world. The problem is this. I have no, I cannot do anything to affect, affect what North Korea is going to do. Now, that's where I think the difference. So no matter, you know, how, no matter how much I wanted to criticize North Koreans, there's no way that I can affect what North Korean leader is going to do. But what, what, what I think as a, as a Korean and also scholar operating and living in the United States who have some access to, uh, let's say, the media and also scholarly community, etc., I think I can have a little bit of maybe power, uh, ability to affect what United States and South Korean government are going to do. 
so that's what I'm saying is that it, that's more realistic because you know life is, is is limited. Our resources are limited. It's only you know pragmatic to focus on where you can affect. So it will be I can talk about for the next twenty four hours you know what North Korea should do, but there's no way uh, my influence will be zero. But if I can, I suppose if I can, it's you know maybe write an op-ed here and there in the United States and also talk to the media like yourself, um, maybe there's a little bit of a, a possibility that I can have some influence. But isn't there a, isn't there a, a messaging cost or a cost of messaging only to criticize the United States and South Korea? I think that, uh, well, for example, is there not a risk that by not being openly critical of North Korea that you appear partisan? I think there are a lot of people who have who have a power and position and enormous resources to criticize mm -hmm. North Korea. I think that I'm actually part of a very, very, very tiny minority. And you look at the entire US media, the entire think tanks, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the entire, um, even, even the, the Korean media. So they have uh, more resources, they have more, uh, more power, more um, connections you know, and, um, and who can, you know, like you can round the clock, you know, criticizing North Korea. So I think that I'm just, I think, you know, part of a tiny minority. So I think it is, it is, I think, role that I think, um, you know, I should play. And uh, I think there's a lot of voices that views that are not represented mm -hmm. by those who do have such power. When people raise North Korean human rights issues, mm -hmm. how do you respond? What do you mean? To, uh, I... you, you've you've talked about um, you know North Korea is under threat. It needs to develop yeah. nuclear weapons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, and and you're not here to defend North Korea. I understand all that, but uh, there's a lot of people who look at North Korea and see that uh, there are human rights abuses going on mm -hmm. there, such as mm -hmm. not allowing its people to participate, yeah. sorry, not allowing its people to choose not to participate in enforced political activities and veneration of the Kim Il-sung mm -hmm. family, not mm -hmm. vaccinating its population, spending mm -hmm. money on weapons instead of food, not allowing mm -hmm. its people to travel outside of its borders without calling them traitors, um, all of these things. When people raise North Korean human rights issues, do you say, well, look, they're important, but this is more important, the, the, the occupation of, uh, uh, of South Korea by U.S. forces and the United States hostile policy? Or I mean, how, how, are we to, how are we to approach North Korean human rights issues? What's the right way to look at them? Number one, the, the, the state of war must end. I think North Korea's human rights violations, uh, those are, as you recall, again, it's, it's a, whether it's a, abused or even justified by the leadership because North Korea is under the, you know, still under threat of war. In a war, Korean war has not ended and therefore human rights violations more likely occur in the in country that are in the war. I think that's one thing. And, uh, uh, and the second thing is, again, um, you know, I know there's a lot of human rights organizations that, uh, that criticize and try to, you know, uh, uh, address the North Korean human rights violation. In my view, you really want human rights, improve human rights um, uh, situation in North Korea. Again, I will say, you know, just let's first end the war. Let's sign a peace treaty. Uh, America's and this um, hostile policy against North Korea, 
and support inter-Korean rapprochement, reconciliation. Um, I think those are the steps. Uh, I think the focusing only North Korea is not gonna really going to solve the human rights um, um, uh, issues there. That's my personal opinion. And secondly, uh, if you really want to improve uh, human rights violation of Korea, and U.S. must uh, pressure uh, U.S. government to lift these uh, sanctions. Um, it is uh, it's uh, it's an embargo. It is the, no nation has suffered that long that uh, that kind of severe economic sanctions from the most powerful country on earth. It's targeting civilian economy. Literally, you're talking about uh, you know denying North Korea's uh, uh, exports, ninety percent of its exports, and how how can a country even you know, have any uh, uh, have semblance of normal economy under such prolonged economic embargo. So I would say, if those people who consider us a uh, violation of human rights violation in North Korea, I would say, you know, address those first. Those should be the steps, first steps. Is there an irony that you live in the United States, a country <laughs> that you see as um, an imperialist occupier of Korean territory, a country that North Korea sees as the enemy, a country that North Korea has said, uh, we cannot live under the same heaven together, uh, and whose policy you believe has caused and continues to maintain Korea's tragic division. Uh, but on the other hand, you have the freedom to be a public critic and, and say what you believe and to lobby and push the United States government to act in a different way. M meanwhile, people in North Korea do not have those same freedoms. Is that somewhat mm -hmm. ironic? I don't think it's ironic. I think it's that, uh, you know, as all, all Koreans, uh, we are sort of uh, caught up in this uh, um, truly the most uh, tragic um, uh, situation in modern history. And one nation that, you know, been one nation for centuries and divided. And uh, I don't think it's ironic. I think uh, it is something that uh, we all are sort of, uh, we cannot, we are kind of a, um, we cannot transcend. We are, you know, well stuck in this historical situation. So yes, I am Korean, and uh, I happen, um, you know, I guess I happen to born in South Korea, and uh, I have, uh, um, you know, opportunity to come to the United States and study, and also be able to um, operate, live, and also do my, um, you know, work, and also meet, you know, amazing American peace activists and scholars. So it is a privilege, and I. So in that sense, I don't think it's ironic. And North Koreans, uh, um, you know, they happen to be in that condition. And uh, um, and as a result of uh, primarily by Americans' refusal to to normalize, refusal to give a peace to this nation, um, and the uh, North Korea, and also North Korea's, uh, uh, of course, it's uh, for their point of view, insistence on defending defending their sovereignty instead of. Uh, what the United States won, which in my view is a, a complete surrender and you know, going back to almost like the Libyan model uh, when it comes to solving nuclear weapons. Uh, United States, I think still in, uh, in my view, still want complete surrender by North Korea and United North Korea is not going to uh, give in to that. So in that sense, no, I don't think it's ironic. I think it is just that we're caught up in this uh, historical uh, situation, which we uh, cannot, it's beyond our, to some extent, uh, individual control. 
but that being said, I think it is um, privileged. And also I think as a, as a Korean, I think it's, it's my obligation and duty. It's not even my choice to, to do something, to have one day a nation uh, that is one, uh, that can coexist together. And uh, I think that is, that is a, the probably wishes of a lot of uh, Koreans in both North and South Korea. Well, I, I think that is a, a good place to end our conversation today. Thank you very much for coming on the NK News podcast today, Dr. Simone Chon. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can find her on Twitter at Simone Chon, that's C-H-U-N. Uh, and uh, you'll find that she's a very active Twitterer there in uh, both English and in Korean. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, also don't forget, if you already have an NK News subscription, please take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Also, with feedback, questions or guest recommendations, send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arius Dare and Brian Detz for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thank you very much and listen again next time. 